Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotso, an editor at RFDEM, and I have the pleasure of hosting Daniel Treisman today. Welcome to the show, Professor Treisman. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you at RFDEM. Professor Treisman is a professor of political science at UCLA and also a researcher at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has published five books by now, as well as numerous academic articles in leading political science and economics journals. Professor Trisman's research focuses primarily on Russian politics and economics, as well as comparative political economy, including in particular the analysis of democratization, the politics of authoritarian states, political decentralization, and questions of corruption. His latest book, which he has co-authored with Sergei Guriev, is titled Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. This fascinating new book paints a detailed picture of the changing face of tyranny. It is an attempt to explain the nature of current dictatorships that have emerged and spread over the past half a century. As a first question, could you say a bit about how these spin dictatorships operate and how is this new kind of dictatorship different from earlier forms that you call fear dictatorships in the book? Sure. Uh, so in the book, Sergei Guriev and I argue that the dominant model of dictatorship has changed. The classic 20th century autocrats were very violent. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao each imprisoned and, and killed millions of people. They censored the media, all the media, and uh, imposed an official ideology that everyone had to accept. Even those who didn't have much of an official ideology, I'm thinking of people like Pinochet or Mobutu, uh, they still tended to be brutally repressive. And uh, these leaders were very public about their violence. They wanted people to be scared. That was the point. Uh, some held public executions. They displayed the corpses of dead rivals or some boasted about their killing. Uh, we, we call these guys fear dictators. Uh, and I should say they haven't completely disappeared. There are still uh, dictators who, who meet this description uh, in say Syria, Bashar al-Assad or North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un. But the average non-democratic leader in the last few decades looks quite different. It's someone like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, the leaders of Singapore, or the early Putin. These guys wear expensive suits and send their kids to college in the West. They claim to be democratic and hold elections. They allow some opposition media, so long as its audience remains small, uh, and they're much, much more open to the outside world. Of course, it's an act. Uh, they monopolize power like the old dictators, eliminating any effective checks and balances, but they do it with much less violence uh, by manipulating information, co-opting the media, and presenting a distorted version of reality. Instead of terrorizing people, they fool them. 
Great. Uh, your book indeed diagnoses a rather momentous transformation, a kind of encompassing shift between these two types of dictatorships over the past roughly half a century. So may I ask why this shift? Why did spin dictatorships emerge and spread uh, so widely? And how might your diagnosis of this shift perhaps differ from other explanations of some of the same regimes? By our estimates, uh, as of 2015, uh, more than 40% of leaders in non-democracies were what we call spin dictators, and fewer than 20% were pure fear dictators. And the rest were various kinds of hybrids. If we look at the cohort of non-democratic leaders who came to power in the 2000s, spin dictators amount to more than 50% of those. That's up from around 10% in the 1970s cohort. So why did this happen? Well, we think, it's, we think it's a result of the modernization and globalization of the world in the late 20th century. Rates of higher education have soared. Uh, so in 1950, there were almost no college graduates in authoritarian countries. In 2010, uh, they made up about 6% of the adult population, and this, this was rising. Countries have been transitioning from industry uh, into services and the knowledge economy. People are more connected by the internet and social networks. And media and the human rights movement are becoming increasingly global. Countries are trading more and uh, people are traveling internationally and their values are becoming more individualistic, more cosmopolitan. This shows up in cross-national opinion polls uh, such as the World Values Survey, there's a growing demand for personal and political freedoms. And all this makes it harder to control societies with violence. Of course, I, I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, there are certainly, as I said, there are certainly some fear dictators left. And recently, some spin dictators like Putin have reverted to fear dictatorship. But using violence to control a country with a large, urbanized, educated population is harder than using it to control a country where say 80% of the population are peasants living in small isolated villages. At the same time, economic growth in a knowledge economy requires a more open society. So uh, dictators have created these more sophisticated methods of controlling the political sphere that don't interfere too much with economic progress and that reduce demands for genuine democracy. How does our account differ from others? Uh, well, some scholars deny that economic and social modernization have anything to do with the evolution of political regimes. They argue that the kind of political regime a country has today is the result of distant historical turning points or culture or pure contingency. We think the patterns in world history just don't support those views, uh, although all those factors do contribute. The patterns are anything but random, and democracy we see has spread across parts of the world with very different cultures. We agree with those who think that modernization does lead to democracy, uh, but we add certain caveats. First, uh, what matters for political evolution within a given country it's not just the level of modernization within that country, but also the level worldwide. 
as more and more countries develop knowledge economies with large, sophisticated, highly educated societies, that leads to the emergence of global networks of activists, uh, media, uh, lawyers, and, and others. And these networks create pressures for democracy, even in countries at lower development levels. So some countries, uh, often uh, those near the West or dependent on Western aid, uh, some countries have democratized in a sense early, uh, before their societies or economies were all that modern. As a result, we don't always see a simple linear relationship between say national income and democracy across individual countries. So that's a first caveat. And a second caveat uh, is that although economic and social development push countries towards democracy as the old modernization theorists argued, dictators can fight back. And they do so precisely by introducing spin dictatorship. They delay the transition to genuine democracy by faking it. So spin dictatorship is a kind of intermediate stage in some regimes uh, between the old uh, violently repressive type of dictatorship and democracy. Uh, it's a way in which dictators uh, resist the pressures of modernization and hold on to authoritarian rule for a bit longer. That's really fascinating. I think this idea that this type of regime might represent a kind of intermediate stage. And indeed, throughout the book, you paint a really captivating portrait of spin dictators and spin dictatorships. And you even call uh, such dictators as some of the most inventive politicians we have uh, today and also underlined, which was in some sense quite a surprise for me when I read it, how popular some of the spin dictatorships can really be and how their leaders uh, often make a modern professional impression, right? They in a way replaced mm -hmm. the ideological rule and uh, terror by softer techniques of deception and of manipulation. And they really do their best uh, to appear pragmatic and competent and are indeed often rather competent also to, to persuade the relatively underinformed, you may say, right? So again, they have developed quite sophisticated ways of faking free and democratic government. And you at some point even call them masters of subversion from within, right? Which I think is a very mm -hmm. powerful expression. But again, this, this depiction I think raises at least two questions. What might explain the popularity of these spin dictators, first of all? And if they are, if, if at least some of them are quite genuinely popular, at least in certain countries and at certain times, what then distinguishes these kinds of regimes from those you would call properly liberal democratic? Right. Uh, well, of course, leaders tend to be popular when their economies are doing well. Uh, that's true in all types of regimes. But economic booms don't last forever, uh, especially when the leader's not particularly competent. Uh, so spin dictators need to build and preserve support even in bad times. So how do they how do they do that? Well, first of all, they co-opt or covertly censor most of the media, and they use it to project an image of themselves as skilled, benevolent, democratic leaders. When the facts are good, they take credit. Uh, when the facts are bad, they have the media obscure them and blame others, uh, foreign enemies or uh, the global economy. 
The media slanders and discredits any possible alternative party or leader. Uh, so the incumbent looks good by comparison. When that works, the incumbent is genuinely popular. We see this in, in a whole range of dictatorships. Of course, it's difficult to know for sure uh, what to make of opinion polls uh, in authoritarian settings, but there's a, a lot of evidence that people, uh, especially in the early years of Putin and the early years of Erdogan, and uh, uh, even in Hungary, uh, Viktor Orban uh, in some periods, these leaders have been genuinely popular. So uh, having achieved that uh, popularity, the regime then holds elections, uh, allowing a few unthreatening opposition candidates to run, uh, perhaps, but manipulating behind the scenes to make sure of victory. And the incumbent uses his popularity to lock in advantages uh, through constitutional changes, uh, eliminating checks and balances, gerrymandering constituencies, and so on. In contrast to the old fear dictators, uh, spin dictators avoid violent repression, or at least camouflage it. Uh, they arrest political opponents for non-political offenses like fraud or draft dodging. So Alexei Navalny, the uh, Russian opposition leader, uh, was even accused of illegal elk hunting. Uh, Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan prosecuted a journalist for allegedly raping a minor. And uh, Erdogan indeed prosecuted uh, one Turkish politician uh, for allegedly uh, using a fake medical report to avoid military service. So, so draft dodging. Uh, now, spin dictators stay open to the world. Unlike many of the old style 20th century dictators uh, who tried to isolate their country, uh, spin dictators integrate fully into global trade, capital, international institutions, uh, which they often try to exploit in a cynical way. Uh, so what distinguishes these, these uh, regimes uh, from genuine liberal democracy, uh, given that people, uh, that, that uh, the dictator is actually popular, but well, it's the way that this popularity was created and sustained. Uh, in a genuine liberal democracy, there's uh, open independent, uh, there's free independent media, there's uh, a political openness, which allows people to uh, debate and criticize uh, the leadership and expose uh, lies and uh, distortions. Um, and uh, there's there are checks and balances, which, as I said, the spin dictator tries to remove uh, using his great popularity uh, to push through changes in the constitutional order. Great. Again, I think that's a very convincing answer, also drawing uh, the contrast uh, very powerfully. Uh, much of the argument of the book uh, hinges on the distinction, right, which we have already discussed uh, between fear and spin dictatorships. And I think this distinction is really illuminating. You provide a lot of evidence of how a shift has taken place and what it has meant. But at the same time, I think one could say that dictatorships vary along a rather broad spectrum, right? So I was wondering whether you could say something more about 
wouldn't perhaps additional subcategories be useful to distinguish between some of the different uh, regimes that you categorize under this label of spin dictatorship in the book? And I have a more specific question there, and I'm sure you perhaps already, already saw this coming. You mentioned uh, the early uh, Putin regime uh, earlier on. Uh, and I was wondering whether you could say more about this, because I'm sure a lot of readers uh, will pose this question. You know, can we still call the Russian regime today a spin dictatorship? Hasn't it in a way evolved way beyond that? Hasn't it radicalized way beyond that by now? And if so, how would that evolution reflect back on the interpretation and all the explanations you provide in the book that are otherwise so rich and so nuanced? Uh, well, Yes, first of all, uh, yes, there are subtypes and uh, there is an, indeed a spectrum of political regimes. Uh, when we look empirically and come up with uh, statistical measures of regime type, uh, we do find a good number of what we call hybrid regimes, which are uh, like fear dictatorships in many ways, but not completely, or like spin dictatorships, but differ in some, in some regards. And there were some cases which are, which are quite difficult to classify at first. And so a particularly interesting one is China. So uh, China under Xi Jinping uh, seems to us clearly a fear dictatorship, uh, but it's, it's one that uses very modern tools of surveillance and information control. The reliance on, on fear is, is pretty evident. Uh, the leaders uh, use very tough language and force against ethnic minorities in regions like Xinjiang and Tibet. And we also see very harsh policing and the jailing of oppositionists in Hong Kong. Uh, and in mainland China, dissidents are forced to make confessions on TV, which seems you know, clearly aimed at, uh, at spreading fear. But at the same time, we see some uh, quite sophisticated censorship tactics on the internet. Uh, we see relative openness to the world, trade and travel, and a lot of new technology. Uh, so we view China as an old-style fear dictatorship that uses high-tech tools to make intimidation more effective. Uh, it's a bit like Saudi Arabia or Egypt. Uh, these are not exactly the same as the totalitarian regimes of Stalin or Mao, uh, but they still are on the uh, fear side of the spectrum. Now, as, as for Putin and Russia, Putin has clearly transitioned from spin to fear. Uh, and this happened between 2018 and 2022, uh, with the final blow coming right after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, when the few remaining independent media were closed down and, and citizens were threatened with 15 years in jail, merely for calling the war a war. In the book, we actually note that Putin's regime at that point seemed to be in transition. Uh, so when we were writing in early 2021, uh, we characterize Putin's regime as, uh, quote, on the border between spin and fear and moving in the direction of the latter. Still, uh, although Putin uh, has eliminated opposition media and embraced a rhetoric of fear and tightened internet control, uh, Putin has not, at least not yet, arrested large numbers of political prisoners. The current tally is, is less than 100 if one doesn't include those in prison for religious reasons. Uh, and there's no mass killing, uh, thank God, at least yet, uh, outside the, the war zone, of course. Now, spin dictators 
do uh, when they face a major crisis often try to hang on by reverting to fear. That happened with Putin, as I, I was just saying, but it's also happened uh, with the transition from uh, Chavez to Maduro in Venezuela and in Turkey with Erdogan's evolution uh, after the 2016 failed coup. We see this as a desperate measure. It's a sign of weakness rather than strength. The economies of uh, all these countries, Russia, Venezuela, Turkey, uh, have deteriorated sharply, as one would expect, given the difficulty of sustaining a modern innovation-based economy in a climate of fear. Uh, but in each case, the leader felt he had little option. Uh, and so uh, we should expect to see uh, when, when a spin dictator is, is pressed by continued modernization of society or perhaps by an economic crisis uh, to respond and he sees that the techniques of spin are no longer enough, they're no longer working, uh, we should expect sometimes those dictators to try to cling on to power uh, by uh, reverting to fear and once again trying to terrorize the population. Yes, and those are indeed some of the most uh, varying cases we have today. So I think it's really uh, great that you have managed to, to uh, shed some light, light on this, uh, these processes as well. But one ambiguity in the book that really struck me is that on the one hand, you write how key elements of spin dictatorship, such as manipulating the media, engineering popularity, faking democracy, limiting public violence and also opening up to the world, by the way, they complement each other rather well to produce this new model of unfree governance and how this new model has really spread in recent decades. But at the very same time, you sound rather confident uh, and even quite optimistic in some sense, claiming that these regimes merely delay democratization, right? They, they merely manage to mm. delay it by faking it. And so in the end, you depict uh, them rather uh, as the ebb of a wave uh, and not really a change in the current, right? Not really a, a major process of de-democratization as such. So I was wondering whether you could perhaps say more, what makes you so confident uh, that these regimes that again, so many people seem to be fearing nowadays that they do not actually represent the wave of the future and might in fact prove rather temporary in the end. And so equally importantly, you know, what, what kind of strategies uh, do you see as, as, as really being important to make sure that these regimes actually do not come to represent the wave of the future? Well, of, of course, we could be wrong, but uh, sustaining spin dictatorship alongside economic progress is, is really difficult. Uh, so the only country that has managed this is Singapore. Uh, perhaps others will prove able to follow the Singapore model, but ultimately almost all countries that reach a certain level of economic development, uh, unless it's the pseudo development of a petro state, they end up democratic. Uh, so that's what uh, underlies that element of optimism, although it's an optimism in the medium to long run rather than an optimism about the short run. Now in the book, we talk about how we think the West should deal with these new dictatorships, as well as some of the more fear-based ones like China. We, we believe that the West uh, needs to remain engaged, uh, but in a smarter, uh, more defensive way than in the past. And we call this adversarial engagement. Uh, this breaks down into a number of ideas. 
I think the West needs to, first of all, monitor better uh, what's going on to understand the relationship with dictatorships uh, a bit more comprehensively uh, than we've done. That means fi better financial monitoring, uh, counterintelligence, uh, of course, cybersecurity. We need to build resilience, identify vulnerabilities in supply chains and trade patterns, and we need to add redundancy uh, to prevent uh, spin dictators and other dictators exploiting uh, the vulnerabilities that are created through uh, asymmetric uh, trade. Uh, we need to, very importantly, stop enabling dictators. Uh, so uh, in the West, there's this really uh, quite large industry of lobbyists, lawyers, bankers uh, who create the shell companies, who lobby on, on behalf of dictators, uh, and to influence our own political process. And I would add to that uh, tech firms who uh, sometimes Western tech firms produce uh, products that uh, facilitate surveillance of populations in authoritarian states. Uh, so we need to uh, stop uh, providing all this infrastructure uh, of authoritarianism, uh, both in the West and uh, for them to use at home. We also need to reinvigorate democracy in the West, uh, both for our own sake and to set a better example. Uh, we need to reform and strengthen international liberal institutions, uh, the UN, the EU, NATO, Interpol, uh, spin dictators like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, at times Erdogan in Turkey, uh, have been members of these uh, Western institutions that have a very clearly liberal, pro-democratic uh, uh, mission, uh, but they have internal procedures which rely a lot of, upon consensus, uh, which are exploited and used by spin dictators to try and blackmail the West to get what they want. So we need to think hard about how to, how to reform the internal workings of, of these institutions and also to, to think hard about uh, which countries really should be members of which particular international organization. Uh, around the world, uh, we argue in the book that we need to support democracy democratically. Uh, so not by invading countries. We see no evidence that, uh, except in very uh, unusual circumstances like the aftermath of World War II, uh, when uh, the Western uh, powers uh, had comprehensive occupations of Japan, Germany, and, and some other uh, former uh, enemy countries. Uh, in general, inv invading other countries to spread democracy seems absolutely not to work. Uh, but instead, we need to, as I said, support democracy democratically uh, by leveraging public opinion and, and building international coalitions. And uh, perhaps counterintuitively, uh, I think we need to welcome modernization and the global integration, even of our adversaries. Uh, so we shouldn't try to isolate ourselves or isolate uh, foreign countries, although of course it's necessary uh, as a military defense uh, mechanism when countries as Russia has done uh, start wars of aggression. Um, but at times of peace, we should welcome uh, the modernization and global integration of our adversaries because those processes will generate pressures for positive change. Uh, if a modernizing autocracy sounds dangerous, a blocked autocracy uh, is 
is, is likely to be even more aggressive and difficult for the West to deal with. So we should uh, we should uh, see things in those terms, I would argue. Now, all of that, of course, is very easy to say. Uh, a, a lot of recommendations, uh, much harder to do, but we need to start, I think, by thinking clearly uh, about how the West could improve uh, the way it deals with the authoritarian world. No, I think these are indeed really important uh, practical insights uh, based on really a lot of knowledge uh, and a lot of original research. So I think we should take them very seriously. Uh, I think the entire discussion we've been having has been really rich and fascinating. But as a final question, I still wanted us to return to a more theoretical, if, or if you wish, more epistemological uh, question, if I may. Because it seemed to me when I was reading your book is that the distinction you make between liberal democracy on the one hand and spin dictatorships on the other hinges very strongly on an opposition you construct between informed and uninformed citizenry, right? And I was wondering whether you could elaborate uh, on this distinction a bit, because I had a feeling that it's actually rather difficult uh, to really tell who is properly informed and who might be uninformed, right? In a democratic setting, this can always be contested. Uh, so I was wondering why in the end you attach uh, such a crucial role to the informed citizenry uh, when you talk about the proper functioning of liberal democracy? Sure. So, so, so the question is why leaders who seek to control the media, distort the news, manipulate information, and monopolize power, why they succeed in some cases but fail in others. And we think it comes down to the strength of resistance uh, to such projects. And we see a highly educated, internationally connected, sophisticated society as the crucial defense. Uh, that means journalists, lawyers, civil servants, NGO activists, academics, and, and many others who have the skills to communicate and organize uh, to resist a would-be dictator. Now, as a shorthand, we call this sophisticated part of society uh, the informed. Uh, it's not necessarily the rich or members of any particular party. It's those who are harder to fool, who don't like to be manipulated, and who have the skills and networks to fight back. Uh, ultimately, the resources, sophistication, and determination of this part of society explains why an authoritarian leader in a democracy, uh, like, say, Trump in the US, is likely to fail, uh, although there's never certainty in politics. So uh, by the informed, we mean it's close to what some people have called civil society, uh, but a particular type of civil society, uh, which is empowered by education, by connections, interconnections, uh, by organizational and associational skills and resources uh, that enable uh, that part of society to protect its freedoms uh, against a leader uh, who seeks to consolidate power using all of these manipulative tools uh, that we've been talking about. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that answer. I think that really shows also the connection between the various parts of the argument really nicely. And thank you so much for the entire conversation, Professor Triesman. Thank you. My pleasure. I have been talking to Daniel Triesman today, who has just co-authored a fascinating new book with Sergei Guriev titled Spin Dictators, 
the changing face of tyranny in the 21st century. It is a deeply learned book written in an accessible style and tackles some of the most vexing questions in the study of authoritarian states and democratization. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it today here at the Review of Democracy. Until the next time.